Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, the rise of pandemic podcasting, what we lose if we lose the JC, and why The Telegraph isn't taking China's money anymore. Plus, the Edinburgh TV Festival goes digital and the audio industry offers funding for freelancers hit by the outbreak. And in the Media Quiz, we wade through the weirdest shows in the Disney Plus back catalogue. It's all to come in today's Media Podcast. And we are, of course, recording remotely again. So apologies if, like last time, we generate some weird feedback farty noises and or lose a guest midway through the show. Uh, the good news is I've insisted we had three guests this time, just in case anyone does a Maggie Brown. And what a selection we have for your audio pleasure. Uh, first up, radio and podcast critic for The Observer, writer and broadcaster Miranda Sawyer is here. Hello, Miranda. Hello, Wally. <laughs> Hi. Uh, <laughs> hello, Ollie. Uh, you're going hello. to tell us <laughs> a bit about some of your favourite pandemic podcasts later. Um, but yes. before all that, just generally, you know, you listen to a lot of live radio output as well, obviously. How do you think the industry is living up to the challenge? I think really well. I'm really impressed because there's a kind of practicality to the scheduling, which I, I think is quite interesting. So, um uh, when it comes to kind of BBC radio, there's been a bit of streamlining of shows. So a lot of people are starting a little bit later. Lauren Vern is starting later on Six Music and going on for longer. And so what you get with that is a kind of familiarity, which I think people really want in times of crisis. I mean, you kind of want your radio as a little friend chuntering along in the background quite often, I think. Mm. And um, when it comes to other, you know, more newsy um, uh uh, broadcasters, you know, say LBC. LBC just covers coronavirus um, consistently, which I think is kind of amazing, really. And so I think it's it, it's doing pretty well because it's quite interesting to be an audio critic, meaning that in the in the kind of terms of culture, audio comes quite low normally. You know, films at the top, and then probably followed by TV and music. And audio, radio, and podcasts kind of come just above dance, I would say. And um, suddenly. We're creating, we're like the, like, you know, there's loads of creative audio out there that's being absolutely made for everybody to listen to and being made contemporaneously. Um, mm. So it's new. And, you know, they're going to run out of telly soon because they're not filming anymore. Yeah, you've made me feel sorry for the ballet critics. We should have one on next, next episode. Um, well, <laughs> talking of uh, LBC, we have a living, breathing radio practitioner from that network with us. It is the return of uh, LBC host Ian Dale to the show. Hello, Ian. Hello, Yolo. Hi. Hi. Now, you were uh, one of the first national radio personalities to self-isolate before before it was trendy. Um, so you've been doing this for a month now from your bedroom in Norfolk, I believe. What have in you learned? Um, I'm oh, actually you, in you... Kent. Okay. Um, I, li- I live in Tunbridge Wells during the week, and then I, I do have a house in Norfolk, but um, I am not doing a Robert Jenrick and going to my second home at all because I just think I've got a broadcast set up here which works and I just uh, partly I don't want to risk it but also um, I think there there is something about people um, going to second homes and it's not very popular with the locals because they think you're bringing disease with the, with you and all of that so yeah, yeah. I self-isolate I think it was on the 16th or 17th of March because I'm a type 2 diabetic so in theory uh, more at risk than other people and I was going to start at the end of that week um, and 
And then I think LBC decided to use me as a bit of a guinea pig and said, no, 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 do it from tomorrow. <laughs> so I started on the Tuesday and miraculously it's worked brilliantly. Um, the line hasn't dropped out once. I do tell people where I am. I'm not trying to make out I'm in the studio, but um, I, I don't think if most people didn't know, they, they would realise I wasn't in the studio. And just give us a little bit of technical geekery. How are you managing to keep that connection so perfect. What are you using or what have you learned to use? Well, I, I do have a bit of a dodgy broadband connection here. So um, I, I was a bit worried. So I did try and get an ISDN installed. Um, but everybody then said, oh, that's so 1990s. And I think BT are actually stopping ISDN soon. Um, that didn't work because their engineers were told they couldn't actually come in the house. So, so I, I didn't get that as a backup in the end. Well, I, I've got my laptop and I use IPDTL, which links mm -hmm. into Leicester Square. Um, I've got a media port box, which I think what that does, that plugs into my router. So there's the router, unfortunately, is right at the other end of the house. So there's about 30 metres of, of wire, which we've had to put sort of like uh, gaffer tape all through the house. And that apparently equalises the broadband signal. So if there is a dropout, it, it, you don't notice it for quite some time, unless it's a prolonged one. But so far, uh, we haven't had any problems. So that goes into my laptop. Um, so the producers can sort of put stuff on a Google document to tell me what's coming up next. I've got a GPS 24-hour clock, which my partner kindly got from, I don't know, somewhere in, somewhere in Tunbridge Wells. I've got a picture of my mum to give me inspiration right in front of me. <laughs> I've got a second laptop, which has got phone box, so I can see all of the callers I coming was in. That's, going to ask that's that, actually yeah. really important, because there's been a couple of nights when I couldn't use that for reasons I won't bore you with. It was logged into the wrong studio, that's the square. And so the, the um, producers have to put the calls on the Google document, Documents. So they put caller one, Neil from Walthamstow, uh, caller two, whoever. But you don't, you kind of need to know what the call volume is as to know how much you need to yes. churn to get more callers to come in. Now, on this subject, you basically don't really need to churn at all from the first few minutes you've got people coming in. And I've got an Audio Technica microphone, um, which uh, apparently everyone else is copying. Everyone wants to know what microphone I've got. So um, I think Amazon have sold out of those now. Okay, and you haven't got shares in the company, right? This is a general No, I, I, yeah. I do not. Chris Mason has bought one. I know that. <laughs> Okay, right. Thank you for that. Uh, finally, let's welcome back uh, Edelman, senior analyst and host of the Primarily 2020 podcast, Karen Robinson. Hi, Karen. Hi, Ollie. Hi. How has your working week changed since lockdown? I mean, uh, the Edelman stuff, I guess, rather than the podcasting. <laughs> well, yeah, the Edelman stuff has been... Um, Edelman's been great, I have to say. We've been... Uh, I've been locked down since the 17th of March, and I remember it distinctly because it was the day after my birthday. <laughs> um, so I went in, got some cake and then have not seen anyone there, anyone since. So I've just been living on Microsoft Teams, um, which it, I have to say my house, my husband's also on Microsoft, Microsoft Teams for his work. And it's been slightly awkward. He actually hushed me the other night when we were watching telly together because an advert for Microsoft Teams came on and he wanted to see if they were making any cool product announcements. So I think it's fair to say we're over-invested in that platform. <laughs> Have you been using the dynamic background so it looks like you're on a desert island tiki bar or whatever? I haven't so much. I have been using the blurred background, but actually my colleagues quite like seeing seeing my my house. So they've been sort of looking out to see the different settings. I try and sit in a different chair each time to give them little peaks of my home environment. Uh, but, you know, it, it, we carry on as we can. I mean, as a podcaster, I'm quite used to sitting alone in dark rooms talking to myself. So it's kind of fine. And have you found that your media consumption habits have changed since all of this? I found myself seeking out stuff that, frankly, is a little bit less hectic. Yeah, my media consumption habits have definitely changed, which is one of the reasons I'm not surprised to, to hear that uh, podcast general consumption has changed. Obviously, without the commute, I'm not doing all the podcast listening that I was doing before. And in fact, um, it's really interesting because the only podcast I still listen to now is uh, I've taken up the like NHS couch to 5k running podcast um mm. so you know that's the only time i i have to myself to listen to anything because i'm surrounded by family all the time and and i've also put off i mean i've got a long netflix list of really engaging challenging thoughtful content that i have no interest in watching right now because i just want to see rom-coms okay let's start uh, by talking about the latest print journalism casualties uh, last time we were lamenting the loss of uh, the racing post and city am uh, hopefully temporary in both cases at this time it is the world's oldest jewish newspaper the jc ian fighting to stay in business 
Yes, it's very sad that this has happened, particularly after the troubles that um, they've had over the last few years. And um, you just wonder that, that they announced this, uh, was it last week? And I, I, you just wonder if they can really recover from this. Um, that it's a very small circulation newspaper in many ways. People think that there are millions of Jewish people in Britain. They're absolutely not. It's 270,000. Um, and I, f- I think they have needed a newspaper like the Jewish Chronicle, Jewish News, more than possibly other uh, people over the last few years because they have felt so under attack. We've had the rise of anti-Semitism. It's, like, it's almost like a community newspaper, isn't it? So I hope somehow someone can come in and rescue them because I do think it's important that they survive. Yeah, I, actually, the, the, the Jeremy Corbyn stuff is a really interesting example, Miranda, because it shows what happens if you lose a community newspaper. You know, a story like that was being dogged pursued by Stephen Pollard, the editor of the Jewish Chronicle. And you do think if, if a title like that didn't exist, it, we could have ended up with a very different election result. I mean, it takes, uh, a, you know, a, an interested party like that to keep pursuing a story. Very much so. And uh, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it does seem that perhaps um, the, there's the Jewish Chronicle and the Jewish News, they may merge because um, the Kessler Foundation is making a bid. So perhaps if we, there'll just be one newspaper. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, there were some pretty horrible tweets when the the when the um, Jewish Chronicle seemed to be shutting from certain um, Labour affiliated people, um, and I do think that you know generally, you know, we are a pretty tolerant country, but everybody has a certain kind of identity that they fall into, and I do personally think that those those um, identities need to be catered for in a certain way, and especially the Jewish community, who have obviously been through terrible times that um, that we all know about. Um, you need a kind of environment where your interests and your concerns can be discussed amongst yourselves quite happily, and I think that, that newspapers are uh, an obvious place to do it. And Karen, it does seem a bit up in the air what's happening. They've announced a voluntary liquidation. They've announced an intended merger. They've announced that Richard Ferrer, who was the editor of the Jewish News, would become the editor of a merge title rather than Stephen Pollard. But they haven't actually, for instance, announced that they'd like to keep the brand of the Jewish Chronicle alive, which is a surprise to me, uh, because if you like, that's the broadsheet and the Jewish news is the free sheet tabloid. Um, You'd think JC would be the name you'd keep. Yeah, well, I mean, they might just be trying to keep things up in the air while the deal is finalised because a lot of these things will come out in the negotiations and they might not want to lock themselves into anything. Um, But I hope they do find a resolution. Um, It it does seem to me that merging the two publications may not be the worst idea in the world, Um, not least because they can perhaps even better serve the needs of, of, of the community by having kind of the combined resources um, of the two papers rather than being in competition with each other. Um, but I would say, you know, it's, it's an interesting time um, for publications, and I, I include all publications as well as, as well as media, that serve niche communities. I think there's a lot of opportunity for sort of multimedia content that's directed at a particular community. Um, But, you know, subscription models, probably prices have to go up. You need to think about, um, you know, using podcasts and other platforms to try and kind of make your media entity more robust. I think it's um, it's challenging across the board, but I think it's they do real journalism and I really hope they find a way through. Yeah. And Miranda, your employers at The Guardian are the latest publisher to announce more furloughed staff. Um, yeah. do, do you think, do you sense there are conversations going on among some of those staff that they may not be returning? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm free, I am freelance, although I'm, uh, I have a contract with The Observer. I mean, it seems to me that the, this kind of uh, pandemic where everybody is shut inside, um, that this will obviously undoubtedly affect magazines and newspapers in print form. It's going to be a really, really difficult time. And I expect to see quite a lot of um, print form of journalism just drop, just fade away. And, uh, you know, that is for me, I mean, obviously very upsetting, but it has kind of been happening for a very, very long time. And I think that if you can be nimble around things like podcasts and uh, online offer, then I, the online offer, then I, then I think that, yes, you can survive. But I think that print, honestly is really, really going to have it tough over the next, like, if we if we stay locked down, let's assume we stay locked down until sometime in the summer. I really, really think that some print titles are going to find it really, really difficult because we don't actually have a subscription model like they have in America. In the UK, a lot of the time, things are just picked up at the supermarket. 
Uh, yeah, and partly because a lot of the advertisers in those publications, obviously, you know, are having a tough time as well or aren't open at the moment. Yeah. And with that in mind, Ian, I'm fascinated by the Telegraph's decision to drop their Chinese-funded content from their printed digital editions, because presumably that was very lucrative. It's been running for like a decade or something, and it is sort of state propaganda, but it's it's become something that people are used to reading. Why do you think they've dumped it? Well, have they dumped it, or have they been dumped? It's not absolutely clear. For and Jim Waterson wrote mm. this story in The Guardian. It's not clear whether it was their decision. I hope it was the Telegraph's decision. They should never have uh, taken this in the first place, in my view. OK, they made clear that it, it was uh, where, where all the material came from but it did leave a bit of a nasty taste in the mouth also the other thing that i found really weird about it is that the the kind of you know people's daily online site was completely free to access whereas the telegraph itself is behind the paywall so it was a very odd kind of combination of of factors and it does seem to me that it, that you know they, they've got rid of that association after a buzzfeed article i mean the buzzfeed article came out on april the first kind of pointing out the fact that the the telegrapher have been uh, taking the money, £750,000, uh, supposedly, and wondered why that was. And then after that, on the on April the 3rd, the People's Daily, Daily Online site was removed. And then on April the 7th, they removed China Daily's China Watch feature as well. So it does seem to me that they were kind of felt like, all right, this isn't quite the moment to be so heavily associated with what was essentially Chinese propaganda. I mean, you, you, we should also point out, though, and this is what I have now remembered, that the, the Telegraph have written quite a lot of anti-China editorials. So I think there was a lot of feeling at the beginning of this. Well, if you're taking three quarters of a million pounds from a country, the temptation is that it will affect your editorial content. Well, there's plenty of evidence that it didn't. It's quite weird, though, that the tradition still exists in various other newspapers. I mean, I, I, Karen, it's still on the Wall Street Journal, for example. I, I managed to mm. locate there. Chinese-sponsored positive news story section. It's quite weird, isn't it? It has shone a light on it. It is weird. Well, I think you have to look at it from the other perspective, right? Why are China doing this? What are they hoping to get out of it? And why the selection of The Telegraph and The Wall Street Journal? It's pretty clear that what they're trying to do is influence um, the sort of financial world, the sort of more elite circles within Western companies, countries, presumably to benefit their trade policy. Now, perhaps right now, trade policy is not the top of the agenda. Um, and for perhaps mutual reasons, it might not be the right time for either China or um, Western publications to be seen as being in sync with each other. Um, it, I think it's a very strange thing that happened in the first place, to be honest. Um, but I do hope Telegraph finds some place, some replacement for that £750,000 hole in their budget, because they'll need to come up with it somewhere. Well, one potential replacement, Ian, might be to uh, go cap in hand to Rishi Sunak, like everyone else is at the moment. Do you think the UK government should be following Australia's lead? Uh, over there in Oz, they've been offering tax breaks and extra funding for certain commercial broadcasters, for instance, to plug this gap. Well, I think everybody is going cap in hand to the Chancellor. Um, I mean, the, the the radio industry has done so to an extent as well. I, look, uh, economics and politics are going to change completely after this. No one knows how, but we, we will not be returning to life as normal. And I think for for hack, hackneyed old Thatcherites like me, dry as dust on economics, we are going to have to get used to big state interventions. And I, I mean, I'm, I don't believe in a big state, but I can see in these circumstances there is no alternative, as someone once said. And, and this will carry on probably for the rest of my adult life. I don't expect to see us go back to what we, we've, we've all thought of as a normal economic situation for 20 or 30 years. And that, that is quite a thought. So every single sector in the economy will have to come to terms with that. There are going to be an enormous amount of casualties. But of course, with threats come opportunities. There will be people who step into the breach. Um, they may start from a very small base, but there'll be huge opportunities for people to start up new businesses, to, to plug the gaps where perfectly good companies have gone down the pan because of coronavirus. And Miranda, there's an emergency fund for people in audio whose income's mm -hmm. been hit by COVID-19. Have, have you seen it? It's just been announced, the Audio and Radio Emergency Fund. Yes, I thought it was quite 
interesting because most people I know who work in audio don't expect much money. So I thought, oh, that's quite nice. A thousand pounds. Well, they're not going to get much, people. to be fair. I mean, you can no, apply for fact- up to a thousand pounds, which obviously is not nothing, yes, but exactly. also not going to tide you across three months of non-employment, is it? It definitely isn't. But I, I mean, I do quite like the idea that it's just to help certain people, you know, people finish with a little podcast that they've got going or just to get some equipment so that they can, you know, broadcast from home. Audio budgets are small you know unless you're a kind of celebrity presenter most people most people who make podcasts do not make millions most people who work in radio are not on huge salaries and i think it's fair enough really i mean it's it's like any freelance industry if it go, if you know if your work stops you need something and i think it's um i think it's a, a generous and kind thing to do really it's the right thing to do quite interesting karen isn't it as a podcaster as an independent podcaster like me you look at this and you think this is funded by the Radio Academy. There's contributions from the BBC and Audible. It's kind of top slicing the license fee for independent podcasters through the back door, isn't it? <laughs> it is a bit. I think so. I, I I take Ian's point about you know we will have to get very used to very different ways of thinking about the role of the of public funding in uh, the media environment and in every aspect of our life. Um, and I look to I look to America during the Great Depression, and I think the work that Franklin Roosevelt did during the New Deal, um, they funded a lot of programs that we right now would think would be kind of wasteful or not necessary, um, art programs, photography, people going around the country. And actually, it turned out to have a lot of value. Um, we have, you know, the, the, some of these works became kind of great works of American art and history and culture. Um, so I think you absolutely should see this as an opportunity. But I think also, as we're thinking about an opportunity to fund great creative work, we could also think about where the gaps are. Um, what What is the thing that's not going to otherwise be filled? And I think there is, um, and Australia, I think, took this model up. There is a real gap in coverage of local news, um, sort of more kind of regional and local pol- political stories. People like The Telegraph will always find a home, but there are communities and societies and parts of this, this world that are not getting represented in the media. And I think it'd be really interesting to spend the time, even just things like covering your local council is not really happening in the news media these days. Um, podcasting, I think, is absolutely brilliant. But um, as we'll talk about, I think, in a little bit, it's the bigger podcasts that are seeing all the kind of success right now. And actually, a lot of smaller podcasts have a really interesting and important voice to say, to say. So I, I'd love to see some thought put behind what are the gaps in our media environment and how could we use this opportunity to create space for some of those. Mm. If you're listening to this thinking, oh, I'd quite like a slice of that, uh, details on how to apply to the fund are going to be available uh, from Monday, April the 20th on the Radio Academy website and social media. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Welcome back to the Media Podcast. Ian, Miranda and Karen are still with me. And let's move on to that old devil fake news now, uh, because merging with the torrent of COVID-19 news is a steady stream of bullshit, uh, not just on social media, but Ian <laughs> kind of creeping into the broadcast media as well. I'm not pointing the finger at you here. I'm just coming to you because you work in the environment. Uh, Ofcom says nearly half of us have been exposed to false claims 
about coronavirus. I can't imagine many of those people were watching David Icke on London Live, but that is an example, isn't it, of web culture news influencing the way that broadcast journalists are covering the news. Well, I, I could not believe that London Live gave David Icke that platform. It was for quite a long time as well, I believe. And I suspect there will be severe ramifications for them from Ofcom. And if there aren't, you just wonder what Ofcom is there for. Um, I, I guess what you're referring to is Eamon Holmes's comments on 5G, which he then apologised for. Um, there are all sorts of things that go round. And, and when you host a radio phone-in show, um, you, you, of course, get to hear from people who who are interested in some of these random theories. Um, I, I do an hour with um, a doctor each uh, week. And some of the calls that come in from that, you think, well... Um, why haven't? Why don't you understand what everybody else understands about coronavirus? I say, well, can can you catch it from this? Um, is this a cure? Is that a cure? Can this help me recover from it? And you think, where have you seen all of these things? And of course, mostly it is on the internet uh, or through face, Facebook groups. I think are probably um, the, the the ways these things spread uh, most often. Now, what can you do about it? Well, regulators can do something about it, which is why I hope Ofcom do uh, come down very hard on London Live. Um, on, on the internet, it is up to the likes of Facebook to try and police these things as best as they can, but we all know how difficult that can be. I mean, it's difficult, Ian, in that format, isn't it? Because, you know, I've hosted radio phone-ins for LBC as well, and I've been to some of the same presentations you have <laughs> about how the audience respond to listeners above all. You know, that if you hear the voice of someone with a personal anecdote, you trust them almost more than the presenter, certainly more than an advert or whatever. I mean, in the example you just gave, you've got an expert next to you who can say, well, actually, this is how it is. But there comes a point where you almost have to tell the listeners who are calling you to go and get their information from the NHS or the government. Like, stop listening to each other so much. It's interesting to share stories, but it can't be the truth. I think that um, in speech radio nowadays, every presenter is feeling the responsibility of what they say on air far more than they normally do. Um, I'm aware that one word out of place, one word that might be seen as agreeing with any kind of conspiracy theory could, could set a hair running, which would be absolutely disastrous. Um, it is, in essence, um, public service broadcasting, what we're doing. I know we're in the commercial sector and people think of public service broadcasting only as the BBC, but it absolutely is not. Um, my producers, the whole of the staff at LBC, I, I really think um, see their responsibility in, in scenarios like this because they know that we we are a very trusted source of news and comment and um, we really have to live up to that. Uh, and, I mean, as part of the example of that, I mean, Global Radio have furloughed some staff, but mainly on the music brands. I don't think they've furloughed anybody from LBC. We, we have an entire complement of, of our staff because they know that what we're doing is absolutely vital and accuracy is absolutely key. What did you make, Miranda, of Eamon Holmes going rogue on this morning? Just for people who missed the story, what he said was in response to their consumer editor, Alice Beer, saying that the rumours linking 5G to coronavirus were nonsense and stupid. He interrupted and said, I would just say that the mainstream media are following the state narrative and if you've got an inquiring mind... You should be prepared to yeah. accept that this should be proven false before you say it's false. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, that was essentially it. It was weird. Yeah, he said, I mean, I've actually written down what he said. He said, what I don't accept is mainstream media immediately slapping that down as not true when they don't know. It suits the state narrative. I mean, I think a couple of things about that. You have to remember that Eamon is Northern Irish and I live with another Northern Irishman. And I think that if you have grew up in a certain time in Northern Ireland, then the state narrative was quite difficult to deal with. So I think that um, that is something that's running through Eamon, whether he, you know, that is part of his identity. I mean, obviously he shouldn't have said it. it's a complete load of nonsense, the, the 5G kind of conspiracy uh, theory around coronavirus. Um, what I find quite interesting is the idea that he doesn't think of himself as mainstream media because he thinks of himself as a kind of, I don't know, I suppose of as, as a kind of rebel within the mainstream media. He's completely mainstream. He works and uh, you know for a very respected, very watched programme. And I think that what he wants to do, which I really understand, is represent, in inverted commas, the little man, against state forces and that's what he was trying to do but it, the problem is he chose the wrong subject I mean it's patently rubbish what he was trying to promote was just absolute nonsense but I understand almost why he would do it because of his 
background. I do understand that, but obviously it was just nonsense. <laughs> there are many times when, as a presenter on programmes like his or, or mine, you play devil's advocate with a listener or with a guest. Um, if I'm interviewing yeah. a conservative politician, for example, I'm going to say some very unconservative things. That doesn't mean to say that I necessarily believe them, but I think I'm fulfilling my role as a, as a presenter and interviewer. Now, he could have argued that he was doing that to an extent. I don't really think it washes, but um, it's, it's unbelievable the number of times when you get accused of believing something when you've actually just played devil's advocate. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's really interesting because you're just trying to offer a different opinion. The problem is when you do it with something like that, isn't it? I mean, that's where, for instance, the the Today programme on the BBC used to get in hot water because it used to kind of put up people who really didn't believe in climate change against the scientists who had all the the uh, facts at their fingertips. It's just that, isn't it? If you're, if you're presented with something that is complete nonsense, you kind of have to say it's complete nonsense. Yeah, I, I, th- I suppose as well that Eamon Holmes's uh, image isn't one of just cuddly daytimeness. You know, he did anchor Sunrise for Sky News for, you know, over a decade. And so he is also the face of the news to people. I think that's where there's a confusion there. You know, he's not just saying, oh, here's a thing I read online, who knows? He's, he's muddying the water as a respected news journalist? Well, only because he he presents opinions sometimes. In LBC, we're, we're encouraged to be opinionated. But I know, like on coronavirus, you you, you do keep some of your opinions to yourself because you, you, you're you sort of going into slightly BBC mode. It's when you do breaking news when there's a terror incident. You are just in rolling news mode. You don't give opinion at all. And I think that's probably where he fell foul here. He, he thought, well, this is a programme where I can offer an opinion. And, and it's, well, it's cost him. And Karen, one place where people can give opinions and do is YouTube. Um, they have been busy deleting 5G conspiracy theories, but they, they're never going to catch up, are they? Uh, will it make any difference terminating channels that are propagating this stuff? Well, it does make a difference. Um, you may never catch up and you may never be perfect. But as, as with all things, better is better, is better right? <laughs> you want to get closer to good. Um, and already YouTube has, has made a big impact on other propagators of conspiracy theories, like Alex Jones, for example, in his Infowars. He used to have that very effectively monetized for himself by... Um, doing some pretty hideous conspiracy mongering and and um, inciting kind of really violent and horrific actions against people who have been victims of, of tragedies. Um, by being shut down by the platforms, he's basically demonetized and he and, and others of his ilk have found it much harder to make a living and also have been able to reach fewer people. So although I agree, you know, that YouTube and other platforms have a real challenge in arriving at perfection, um, it is absolutely incumbent upon them to do everything that they can to um, stop the people with a really big audience from spreading that audience, uh, sharing, growing that audience even higher um, and monetizing it um, because the, the algorithms are designed to sink people further and further into these black holes. Um, so, you know, if you start watching one kind of mildly critical video or one mildly sceptical video, um, you will then be fed another one and another and another. And YouTube have been trying to solve that problem. Um, but fundamentally, that's just how the internet works. So taking the people who have the kind of biggest audiences and the highest platform conspiracy-minded nonsense off of the platform um, is a really good start in and actually does make a big difference. And I get the business logic of you click on a bullshit story and they can still direct you to an advert to something they want to sell you, or you engage with a bullshit story and say it's bullshit. And as a result, in a sense, you validate the concept of it existing at all. So that's politically useful sometimes. I don't understand the fake WhatsApp news. Like, what actually is the point for the person who generates a fake news story saying, my aunt works for the MOD and she's just come out of a meeting where they said the army's about to put Chester into lockdown? What I mean, what's the advantage for that person of that thing being spread about? Some people Attention. Attention. <laughs> you, you really, all three of you said that. You really get it. You, you, you understand yeah. the reason. 100%. People just want to feel important. Let's move our attention to podcasts now, uh, partly because it is a genuinely fascinating area, but also partly because I'm a podcaster and you're all either podcasters or podcast obsessives. So uh, we love to talk about ourselves. Uh, let's go. Uh, Miranda, let's start with the new Corona podcasts that you've been listening to and reviewing for The Observer how do you think the mediums responded to the pandemic? Um, pretty well, I think. I mean, not all of them. It is interesting to me that there, was a, um, there have been a couple of um, uh, coronavirus podcasts put out by uh, ITV and Sky. And honestly, the sound is absolutely terrible. I mean, it's quite basic. No pop shields. Like, 
just almost unlistenable. So I did think that was quite interesting, given that these are two very big multimedia companies who don't actually know how to make audio. But there you go. Um, I think generally um, pretty good, I have to say. There's two that I like in particular. Um, one is called The Coronavirus Diaries, and that's kind of made by BBC Five Live. And all they've done, which is a very uh, interesting and revealing thing to do, is they've just found different people who are working on the front line of... Um, of looking after and dealing with the uh, coronavirus. So they've got an ICU doctor, they've got someone who works in a care home, they've got a GP, people like that. And they've just asked them to occasionally make a recording into their phone and then send it to them and then they make a programme out of that. So it's been going for two, three weeks, I think now. And um, it's really good. Uh, it's, it's really revealing. It's not too... It's not schmaltzy. It's not... Well, it is a little bit scary, but it's just very revealing. And I, I would really recommend that. And actually, I would recommend the LBC Daily Update with Nick Ferrari, actually. It's called um, Coronavirus UK. And the reason why I think that's good is that LBC are very good at maintaining their relationships with politicians. I mean, maybe it's particularly because we have a Tory government at the moment and most but definitely not all uh, the shows on LBC are perhaps slightly more right-leaning, but the relationships and also, That's you know, actually LBC not have true, had Miranda. L- I mean, I know um, LBC has got this reputation for the the. Well, no, I mean, I, I was thinking of James O'Brien and 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 and. I mean, I know Sheila, it's not because James O'Brien is Sheila and, and Eddie. And there's loads of others at the weekend as well. Yeah, I know. I mean, I do think that was, that's why I was not saying that there was entirely by any means. But uh, but the, what I but there has been an interesting relationship between LBC and. And politicians in terms of just even shows, you know, so Boris used to um, have a particular moment on LBC, as did Jacob Rees-Mogg and, you know, Nick Clegg did all those kind of people. But the relationships with politicians, I think, is really interesting because I think they're pretty good at LBC as having good enough relationships to get politicians on, but then hold them to account. And that's what's done really well on the Coronavirus UK uh, podcast. I would also, so I would recommend that. There's loads, though. I have to say, there's coronavirus global update. There's another one called the coronavirus podcast, which is a kind of Brexit cast kind of thing. There's absolutely loads. The Telegraph's got quite a good one called coronavirus, the latest. I mean, there's just everywhere. There's American ones. But is there anything left to say, Miranda? I mean, it, you know, often podcasts. I mean, let's take Brexit cast because you just mentioned it. You know, I saw the role there. That was really clever journalists at the BBC who are completely, uh, you know, up to their necks in Brexit and not finding enough space on the news to actually say everything they know. That isn't the case with this story. Like, anything that you could possibly say about coronavirus is being said in the four hours of Good Morning Britain, isn't it? Yeah, but I think that people don't always watch the telly and they want to they want to access it in their ears. And also, I think you're slight, just slightly missing the point of those kind of podcasts. So the reason why the coronavirus podcast works is because it's the same crew who did Brexit cast. So you're actually tuning in to see how your mates, the crew... Are you know kind of finding out finding finding having to report on the coronavirus all the time? There's a kind of familiarity and coziness around that. You're part of that club, and if they were just talking about I don't know, if they're talking about the Brits, you'd probably listen if you liked them enough. So I just think also people people swing between two things, don't they? They want loads and loads and loads of information, and then they panic and think I never want to hear about this ever again. But you, there is a point where you want loads and loads and loads of information, and that's where these podcasts come. I think the point about familiarity is really important, um, and that's why the the coronavirus one, the Brexit cast one, probably works. I have to say, personally, I, I would never want to listen to a coronavirus podcast because I, I think I get enough content from that from elsewhere each day. But the the podcast that I do with Jackie Smith for the many, which is inevitably dominated by coronavirus now, what we have found in terms of feedback from the listeners is that um, that a lot of them, because it's not just serious analysis, I mean, we have a laugh, Um, there's an increasing amount of smut on it as well, as I'm sure you've seen, Ollie. Um, (laughs) And a lot of listeners are saying, oh my God, you are keeping us going, thank God you're doing two a week, Uh, we love all the humour, the fact that you're not being serious all the time. And people want something, I think, just a little bit different from, from trusted voices that they listen to, but they want to know that we're not all going to hell in a handcart. And Karen, looking at the statistics as to uh, whether or not that decision to multiply the amount of coronavirus podcasts that there are exponentially, I saw some research saying four out of five comedy podcasts now mention coronavirus. Um, are people listening? 
Well, I mean, if, the the word on this is is basically no. <laughs> I mean, or at least numbers have gone down, but it's sort of a bit more confused than that. So the major, the biggest podcasts seem to have maintained their listenership and even be growing them and they're monetizing really well. Um, <clears throat> this sort of flowering of, of hundreds of thousands of other podcasts around the world, numbers there have gone down um, because people's lives have changed. And I think it's it's completely understandable. There's a situational change. People have lost their commute to some extent, which is where a lot of us um, were consumers of podcasts and are now at home a lot more, um, either with their family, whether they're in close quarters, people don't have necessarily a lot of privacy or alone time um, to do that, or you know they've got work from home or they're just consuming a lot of other content. I expect that will change. I expect that actually podcasts will probably start growing again, but will be different um, as we go longer into this cycle. Um, because I feel like people, as we were saying before, there's a real craving that people have for, as Ian was saying, positivity, kind of humor, upbeat, um, good news stories. And I think we've sort of gone through a period of very intense news consumption. And there's a lot of data that says news consumption went up very, very highly um, during the first couple of weeks of lockdown as people just trying to gather in all they can. And it's actually gone down a little bit more recently. And I think people have started to devolve to looking for other forms of entertainment, um, more lighter hearted content, um, other types of things to adapt to the new way of life that they're having. So I think podcasts are definitely not not going to disappear entirely. But I think that the context of how people consume podcasts, at least for the foreseeable future, is going to change change in ways that will affect the content and will affect will continue to affect which content which podcasts do well it's also really interesting i think miranda that the device i mean something as mundane as what device you're using to listen to the show would have an impact on statistics in this way because it's not just that you're not doing the commute uh, speaking from my own experience i tend to listen to podcasts on earphones that's why they feel very intimate and they're truly on demand but actually when i'm at home I, I don't really want to walk around with my headphones on. I, I can put stuff out the kitchen radio by tuning to a radio station. I can ask my smart speaker to play a song or play a radio station fairly easily, but it usually balls up when I ask for a podcast. There are fewer opportunities. So it, that's that's to do with a different kind of broadcast, isn't it? So radio generally is a kind of, it's broadcasting out. You could have it on in the background and not really hear it. And podcasts generally are kind of presumed to be a kind of one-on-one -on -one podcast. You've got your earphones on it. And that's what really is often quite quite often the problem with older listeners because older listeners do not want to put headphones on they're not interested in that so you know podcasts like say no such thing as a fish which you would imagine would be massive hits amongst a kind of gen an older generation because they don't wear um earphones it's not you know they haven't kind of found them yet but the device always has kind of hampered podcasting hasn't it always because it depends how you used to listen so people used to listen on laptops and then eventually apple put podcasting buttons onto iPhone so people access it that way and I think that um, there is a difference between podcasting which you listen tend to listen to with headphones on as you mentioned and kind of outward broadcasting which means that everybody in the family can hear it it's like putting the radio on in in the car um, and uh, that that means that perhaps certain other podcasts maybe you know, if you're really interested in, in history and you were listening to a history podcast, that might not be something that you want everybody in the family to hear. So you'll put something a little bit more jolly on in the in the kitchen or whatever. I do think that people are consuming it differently because it tended to be at the commute or at the gym. It wasn't for me because I neither commute nor use a gym. But for a lot of people, that's how they that's how they access podcasts. That's how they used it. But I, I would, you know, really like to point out that podcasting has always been hampered by how you access it. Always, always, always. And until that is completely got right, then podcasting is always going to have that, is always going to have that problem, really. You know, there isn't a box in the corner. It doesn't quite work. You've got an Android phone. It's just difficult. I, I've been just reflecting on my own consumption habits because I think in some ways I'm quite typical there, which is that I used to consume podcasts, as you say, Miranda, quite in isolation. It was a kind of personal thing. It was my way of getting stuff I was really interested in. But now that I'm at home with my daughter, my husband, I tend to listen, to, I'm lately listening to a lot more kid podcasts, you know. So just to, yeah. to shout out one that I've 
I've been listening to. There's a um, Stuck at Home, which is a podcast from Fun Kids radio station. They're just doing kind of yeah, it's really things good. you can do when you're stuck at home. It's so good. And so we've been doing a lot more stuff like that, stuff that I can consume with her or that we can both enjoy. Um, and I think a lot of people are in that situation of sort of what had been a very personal, private space for you, podcasting, is now more of a family activity. So I, I think that's a really interesting phenomenon to look at, this kind of movement from you know, being in your head to being close together as a family unit. Just a funny story on that. Um, I, I have had to think, well, should I moderate my language on my podcast? Because people find it very funny when they listen to me and Jackie Smith swearing. It, it's it's quite they find it quite weird and, and uh, enjoy it, I think. But I had a listener say, um, could you moderate your language? Because I had your uh, podcast playing on my speakers at Centre Parks the other day. And you swore, and I was upbraided by one of the other mothers <laughs> whose children had heard that word. So be careful. <laughs> I'll tell you, I had to really think about my own language this week when my mother told me with great pride that she had discovered that she can make Alexa play my podcast. And I suddenly had this vision of my mother and her partner in their house in Florida playing my podcast out loud. And now every word that I speak, I think, what would mom think of this? And Karen, podcast advertising revenue, though, continues to grow, or at least in the US it does. I mean, most of the data as ever on this stuff comes from America. Absolutely. Well, I think one reason that might be the case is because advertisers have relatively few other places they can safely put their content. Um, you've seen a lot of um, a, a lot of advertisers have been very wary of putting content against the news programmes or even in newspapers. Um, I know that a lot of our... Um, clients that we work with at Edelman, they have pulled back the media spend that they've made in TV and broadcast um, and other places because it just felt really inappropriate or awkward to put it, position it alongside some of these others. The nice thing about podcasts is you have a lot of control over where your content's going to show up. And so I think it might have become quite an appealing uh, an appealing option to advertisers from that point of view. Um, and then, as I say, the really big podcasts are really big and they're generating a lot of a lot of listens. So I think it's now easier for advertisers to navigate because they can start to see where the kind of TV equivalent spaces are to go because advertisers and media buying agencies, if I may speak of my own industry, um, we're not a media buying agency, but from my affiliation with media buying agencies, they just like to whack things into things that have great big enormous audiences, not kind of tiny niche things. So now that there are kind of enough big mega podcasts that they can throw their money at, I think that's also very appealing to advertisers. And it's not the same advertisers either, is it, Miranda? It's, uh, you know, it's not travel companies necessarily or beverage companies that you get on the telly who understandably would be thinking twice about big spend now. I mean, talk from my own experience, I've got a new sponsor on Answer Me This, which does online courses that you can do from home. I've got a new sponsor on The Modern Man who sell microphones so that you can do remote recording. I mean, these are relevant things to lockdown times. Yeah, I always noticed on the on the kind of Guardian news podcast that they were sponsored by the, you know, the idea that you could get, you know, but by um, a product that was all about headphones. I mean, it just seemed really obvious to me that that's, that's what you would be sponsored by. I wonder a little bit about um, how many people are listening to podcasts, given that it most, mostly they're subscribed, don't they? So you subscribe to a load of podcasts, but you might not be listening to them. And I wonder sometimes about kind of drilling down into that. The big podcasts are always going to be big. And maybe when you're at home, you think, oh, I'll try that out. Like you would try out, you know, a Netflix series. But actually, people subscribe to stuff and then they don't listen to it. Oh, don't get me started on on podcast data. But you can, I mean, it's it's really hard to get a straight answer out of some of the platforms about kind of what your real listens are. But I will say, Apple, for example, does a really nice job of you can go into your podcast and you can really see where the drop-offs are, um, which is really fascinating. So you can really see you know, was there something I said that drove my listeners away? Um, but that also gives you... It's your swearing. It's my swearing. It's my mum. She's just like, I'm outraged. And she's and off. Ian, and Ian, they are cheap to make. Uh, you know, I, I've seen a bit of writing online about how a lot of the big podcasts we know now from America, 99% Invisible, WTF, shows like that, actually came out of the the last uh, fiscal crash um, because they don't cost anything to make necessarily. 
Well, it depends. Some do. I, the, the podcasts that I generally don't like have high production values. I, I think that podcasts have to, in David Cameron's immortal words, keep it real. And it, people don't mind too much if the sound quality isn't what it might be. A, a lot of podcasts have actually had a pause. I, I do uh, five podcasts and two of them I've stopped doing during this because it's actually quite difficult. Um, I mean, if, if you haven't got the uh, broadcast equipment, I, I mean, persuading an author for my book club podcast, for example, that they've got to kit themselves up I mean that's never really going to work so I've put that on pause until it's all, all over and and I think a lot of people have done that even even the ones that are produced by big broadcasters a lot of them have been put on pause James O'Brien's I think um, his um, interview podcast which is incredibly successful I think that's been put on pause for a while as well Okay, let's pivot to telly now uh, and a new way of networking for the Edinburgh TV Festival Miranda they are I guess predictably going digital this summer do you think a sort of streamed online digital version of that is is worth doing really i mean isn't networking all about being face to face having people that work in silos all coming together in one in one place yeah it's about jolly up isn't it i mean you know that's a that's a kind of point of it really i always felt whenever i went up to any part of edinburgh festival apart from maybe the book festival it was a bit like glastonbury with a roof it was just full of people who should know better absolutely trolled kind of making fools of themselves and of course securing deals haha um, I, you know, it does seem a bit pointless to, to me because it's it's really interesting to me. This is a kind of general point, but over the past few years, I think that people have really been looking for inverted commas a festival experience in everything. You know, they want to be amongst amongst people when they go out. You know, I live in Brixton in South London, and there the the kind of restaurant scene has really really exploded but the kind of restaurants are the ones where you queue up you can't book you sit down you're practically sitting on a kind of hay bale with a with a kind of metal uh with a metal plate in front of you and it's kind of quite rough and ready and it's in inverted commas an experience and i think that comes out to absolutely everything whether you're doing a tv festival whether you're doing a book festival people want the experience of being in the room with other people and having something happen that can't happen on the internet that can't it just can't happen on the internet that is absolutely right it's the whole experience you cannot replicate it online i i, I just don't see that this tv festival can work um i did a show in edinburgh last year um interviewing sort of famous people on stage and i was going to do it again this year and i'm absolutely gutted that i won't be able to uh, and the promoter said well why don't we do it online so you can interview people online and replicate the experience and i said absolutely not you just can't do that the whole point of doing it in edinburgh is it's an intimate atmosphere you've got a live audience you haven't got a load of cameras i actually banned tv cameras from from it last year uh, and you cannot replicate that uh, remotely i don't think and if you were advising a client karen about whether or not they should participate in a session at the edinburgh tv festival this year what would you say i mean if and we know that the mctaggart lecture is going to go ahead the controller sessions are going to go ahead but if if you were say one of your clients was a panelist and they said been asked to do this but there's not going to be a live audience and it's going to be on youtube forever you know, would you be worried they're going to look like a prat? No, I don't think they're going to look like a prat. I would say, so it, this is actually a real problem for us because a lot of the work that we do at Edelman is about face-to-face contact. It's about trying to kind of build relationships with a, with a, an audience that we care about, um, you know, often in face-to-face environments. And we have given a lot of thought to how you can have important conversations um, in groups of people. Um, so, for example, you know, we often do a lot of things like workshops, you know, or or kind of collaborative sessions where we're working with stakeholders or people that, you know, that are important important to us in some way, similar to how the TV festival works. And we've kind of been trying to reinvent the way this the way this happens a little bit, because the idea of just getting people stuck in a video chat for five hours to replace what would be a five hour conference is death defying. I mean, it's horrible. Nobody wants that. So we've been trying to talk about, um, you know, ideas like punctuated workshops where you've got maybe 10 minutes at the beginning where you convene as a group and then you give people little tasks to do and maybe they come back and then you have a follow-up conversation or you deputize someone to present back. And so you have shorter little nuggets, possibly Mm. over a longer time. I think we just have to be more creative about different ways of trying to replicate the human experiences that we still need. People still need to interact interact with new people they need to make connections they need to find 
people that have things in common with them for for business but also just because that's what people do um and i think we need to be a lot more imaginative about how to create those opportunities for kind of creative collaboration and being together in a space where we can where we can have those surprising moments that you're talking about i think the real beauty as you absolutely say of of a festival is the things you don't expect the people you run into the the opportunities that are created mm. we need to try and find opportunities for sort of interruption and surprise in this virtual life that we're going to live um it's a challenge but i think we need to we need to do more than just say let's chuck everything up on a video screen. And Miranda, as, as you said earlier, you know, as well as being a, a columnist, you're a you're a freelancer, you're a jobbing <laughs> broadcaster like me. I imagine just like you, you know, just like me, rather, you've got in your Twitter DMs, you know, five or six kind of various important bods that you'd say, hey, let's go for a coffee. Nice to see you. Let's see you again next time. And it's all very informal. It's not like you've got some killer great idea that's going to be the next X Factor. It's just that, you know, at some point, you should go and have that coffee, do the half an hour of nonsense chat, and then just get them to remember your face. You can't exactly. really do that, did you? You can't really say, hey, controller of Radio 4, let's have a FaceTime. Yeah, I mean, it just doesn't work at all. I mean, it's, there's also something to do with, um, you know, not to sound too hippish, but it's something to do with a kind of liking somebody, you know, you yeah. can, you, yeah. that you meet and you get a kind of warmth of them. And even if nothing happens, you think, oh, there's a nice person. And when you see them the next time, you think, oh, there they are, great. And eventually, maybe 10 years down the line, something might happen. You don't know. And I do think that the intimacy of normal human contact and that can be intimacy can be extended to a huge room where you know as Ian said you're interviewing somebody and you have a really great rapport with them and the audience really love it but it's not recorded and it's not put on telly and it's not put on YouTube those kind of experiences are incredibly vital for everybody and it's it you know the fact that they've gone is really really difficult and can't be replicated in any other way I remember you know I mean I'm sure everybody gets this but you get kind of young people coming up to you and saying or indeed you know coming into your dms and going oh you know journalism what's the best way to go about it Mm. and if they're in their 20s I just keep saying to them go out just go out if you Mm. go out there's loads of free things you can go to you don't need much money and you will meet people and eventually something will happen and those meetings not even as formal as networking you will something will come out of those meetings because young people have a tendency if they're skint to just stay at home and stay online and that doesn't work you need to be out there and you need to be meeting people which is unfortunate given the circumstances at the <laughs> it's moment it's less than ideal i will say i agree with your point miranda about comedy doesn't really work uh, in 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 the format that we're talking about here one of the things i've been really surprised by though is how well music can actually rise to the occasion i've been really mm. touched to see like things like online choirs and bands performing at a distance but you know together some of that type of thing where you can demonstrate you know people coming together through music in ways that feel a little more organic that's actually been really successful and some little online concerts have actually been been doing well really well i think it's touching on something some sense of community and togetherness that music has always played as a part of our its role in society that that feels like it's important now Apart from Cliff Richard singing We Don't Talk Anymore with Gary Barlow, who was except out of tune for, for the whole thing. Yeah, except for that. <laughs> By the way, just ju- just as a complete coincidence, I've just had an email pop up from Mark Carney apologising that he can't join me in Edinburgh this August. <laughs> there you go. How dare you check your emails whilst you're recording I the media know, podcast, Ian? That's the advantage. We're not here and to how be dare multitask. he say he can't join you in Edinburgh? That's what I I'm don't saying. Cry. <laughs> Well, no one's rejected me in the last hour, uh, but there is just enough time to squeeze in our media quiz. This is very exciting because Maggie Brown dropped out last time before we had a chance and I couldn't do a media quiz with just one participant, but you're all still on the line, barely. Um, So uh, the theme this week is Disney+. Plus. Uh, As we all know, Disney+, Plus finally launched in the UK on the 24th of March. Among the jewels in Disney's catalogue of over 800 titles, there are also... A few duds, although not the Star Wars 1978 holiday special, as highlighted by The Guardian's Graham Virtue. I'm going to sketch the plot of four of the weirdest shows available to stream on Disney+. Plus. All you have to do is identify the title of the film or series in question. Let's go. What's the title of the cosmic series about superpowered royals who live on the moon? Uh, Karen. Karen. Is it, is it Inhumans? Thank God you got it. At least someone's got one point. I was worried there. It is uh, Marvel's Inhumans from 2017. The cosmic IMAX film was downsized to an eight-episode TV show that struggled to leave any cultural footprint, according to Virtue in The Guardian. Uh, Here is uh, Disney Plus title number two. 
What's the title of the film which follows the friendship between a Bengal tiger being hunted for sport and a pop idol fleeing his touring commitments? <laughs> they didn't build a ride out of this one at Euro Disney. Uh, no one? No. Oh, I know. That was, Ian, oh, Ian. Ian, you've just opened the Guardian article, haven't you? But I don't blame you. Yes, Ian, what was it? <laughs> Sultan of the Rockstar. Correct. Uh, from 1980. <laughs> which uh, I remember, obviously. Of course. Uh, one of hundreds of standalone episodes produced for Disney's various TV anthology strands. Uh, Disney Plus title number three. What is the name of the live action tale of a year in the life of a baby squirrel, complete with fantasy dream sequence? Karen. Karen. It, is it this, like, it's the something of Perry. Is it the story of Perry? It is the story of Perry, P-E-R-R-I, from 1957. This feature-length follow-up to Bambi is a true-life fantasy assembled from documentary-style footage of woodland creatures frolicking in a national park. Um, and uh, finally, Karen, I mean, you've, you've got it in the bag at the moment, but let's let's see <laughs> if... Uh, I, I kind of hope the Miranda chip's in here rather than Ian, because we don't have a Yeah, I've break. opened it now. <laughs> <laughs> I've opened the article now, so I might have a chance. <laughs> I've, just, I've got one I'm really hoping you'll ask me about, because I actually genuinely like it, so... I think that might be this one. Uh, what is the title of the rom-com set in rural Ireland with Sean Connery in the lead oh, and Karen. a host of leprechauns? That is Karen. not to be Darby O'Gill and the Little People. It is Darby O'Gill and the Little People I from genuinely watched this film when I was a child and I got it in my head. I've always got it very confused with the uh, John Wayne film set in Ireland because they're both equally realistic representations of Ireland as in not at all. <laughs> Although apparently very popular in Ireland, this particular film. I noticed in the in the uh, comments on the Guardian article, lots of Irish people were wading in saying, how dare you? Uh, well, that is it for today. Commiserations, Miranda. You didn't get a single point. Yeah, never mind. <laughs> yeah, I'll get over it. <laughs> I mean... In the context of what's going on in the world right now, there are worse things. Uh, but uh, thank you, Miranda Sawyer, Karen Robinson, and to Ian Dale. Uh, you guys can catch up with previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free via our website, themediapodcast.com. And whilst you're there, you might fancy taking out a voluntary subscription to help us keep going all year round. We have no government organisation ready to wade in with cash. Head to themediapodcast.com slash donate and choose a voluntary subscription that suits you. We'd be ever so grateful. Uh, I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Rebecca Grisdale-Sherry. The Media Podcast is a PPM production. And until next time, bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.